Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, we check in with Montgomery County, Pennsylvania Commissioner Ken Lawrence. He's the co-chair of the New Deal's Democracy Working Group. As someone who's in charge of running elections in a political epicenter, he sees firsthand the threats to our democracy, and they're very real. We talk about what he does to keep our elections free and fair, how he fights to help those who are struggling, and why he makes no long-term plans. Enjoy. Commissioner Ken Lawrence, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Let's just start. How are things in Montgomery County? You happen to be like ground zero in a swing state, in a contested time in our political history. How are things going there? Things are going well. It's been an interesting two years, as it's been an interesting two years for everyone across America, but we're, we're doing well in Montgomery County. Good. And how has post-COVID recovery, are you seeing any changes in your economy in sort of how things work? I know you are very involved in transportation planning. How has, how has COVID impacted the transportation systems of uh, Montgomery County? COVID has really impacted everything. I think we're still figuring out what the post-COVID economy is going to look like. One of my roles, I serve on the board of our regional transit authority, SEPTA. A lot of people are still working from home. So we we haven't seen workers returning to the trains and to the buses. So we, we, we need to figure that out. But, you know, people are getting back to work. Our restaurants are busy. The, the economy is picking up. But clearly, there are still people who are struggling, who were, frankly, struggling before the pandemic. The pandemic did not help at all. And, and they're struggling to get out of it now. Absolutely. And it makes me, this made me realize I'm a county supervisor out here in California. I have deep appreciation for the role of county government. Not everybody knows what county government does or how it works. Do you want to talk to people, folks a little bit about your roles and responsibilities in Montgomery County? Sure. I'm a political science major from Temple University. I have a master's in public administration. I've worked around government all my life, and I'm, I'm not sure that I knew what county government did before, uh, before I became a county commissioner. As I like to say, even before the pandemic, I really think that people don't understand local government. They don't understand the difference between uh, the school boards, between local municipalities, and of course, the county as well. So, you know, here in Montgomery County, we have 62 municipalities, we have 22 school districts, and everybody thinks I can tell them what to do. And I cannot. If only, if only. If if only, if only I could wave that wand. But we handle a lot of health and human services here in the county with pass down grants from the state, trails, parks, open space, 
And then the the big one, which I didn't realize it was going to be as big a deal as as it was when I was first appointed in 2017, it was we administer elections. Now, our state general assembly makes the election code, but the functional running of the elections comes down to the counties. And as you know, in, in the past two, two years, four years, uh, there's been a lot of interest in the elections. We've had several close elections. As you mentioned, Pennsylvania has kind of been at the epicenter of a lot of that, and we're the third largest county in Pennsylvania, so people have their eyes on on us. I, I think people have paid a lot more attention to elections, but frankly, don't understand the election process. And because I think we've had some bad actors who have wanted to spread propaganda and disinformation, a lot of people have a distorted view of what our elections really are and how they really work and you know how... Literally, uh, it would be impossible to to have fraud on a massive level without involving hundreds of people and systems and and checks. So it, it can be frustrating now when you you hear people talk about elections as if they're some kind of experts and they really don't have a clue as to how they operate at all. And you're chairing the election board, so you have uh, real responsibility. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like in 2020? to be trying to make sure free and fair elections occurred and and to the disruptions and the national attention that was on you. So Montgomery County was interesting in 2020, and I'll take it back. In 2019, we actually instituted a new voting system. Our, Our governor mandated that all of the counties, all 67 counties, had to have a paper verified ballot by 2020. We actually instituted our new system in 2019 but as you know, in the off-year election, you don't get as many voters as, as you're going to get in the presidential year. Um, so that was one. We, we, we had a new system. But then two, the General Assembly and the governor, in a bipartisan way, because our House and Senate are Republican-controlled, we have a Democratic governor, they passed Act 77, which was really the first uh, real voter reform bill to our election code in, in a lot of years. And what that provided was no excuse mail-in balloting for the first time. We had some of the most restrictive absentee ballot laws in the nation, but this allowed people to apply for a mail-in ballot, get that ballot in, and vote by mail with no excuse. So, of course, then in 2020, we, we had the COVID-19 pandemic. So for public health reasons, a lot of people were deciding to vote by mail we had to consolidate polling locations, take all kinds of measures. But one of the things that the, the legislature and the governor did not do when they when they allowed for the, the no excuse mail and voting is that they did not allow us to pre-canvas. So our election code says that we can't begin processing mail-in ballots until 7 a.m. on election day. And that was fine when we were getting a couple thousand you know, we had we had over 100,000 in, in 2020. President Trump realized that it was going to take us a long time to count those ballots. So he really started to beat the drumbeat on on mail-in ballots and to somehow that they were illegitimate or somehow that they, they were going to be created. All of our mail-in ballots have to be in by 8 p.m. on election day. If, if they come the day after, they're they're not going to be counted. So Really, all of our mail-in ballots were in before people were even voting in person, but we couldn't count them. We couldn't begin to process them, to take them out of the envelopes, flatten them out, and begin to scan them until election day. 
so you really had two elections. You had the in-person election where people were going to vote and those votes can quickly be counted because they can be scanned and, and, and counted. But then you had the mail-in ballots, which in Pennsylvania, you know, we, we actually in Montgomery County counted around the clock. So we were done in like 72 hours. But Philadelphia, our, you know, our largest city, they were counting five days out. And you just had all this noise that, you know, where are these ballots coming from? Well, the ballots were already there. It was just taking time. And people don't understand that you can't just they're in two envelopes. They have to be flattened. They have to be verified. The signature, it takes time to count those ballots where if we had pre-canvassing, if we had been able to do some of that work before Election Day, the, the ballots all could have been counted on Election Day. And it, it's going to be a problem in, in 2022 in our November election as well, because the legislature and the governor still can't come to an agreement. They still don't allow us to pre-canvass. So we'll in the midterm election, you know, we'll have a good number of votes. And once again, it, it's it's going to take time to count those votes. So that 2020 election was really kind of the perfect storm of a couple of things coming together. You have a lot of people here who thought that the mail-in votes were created for the pandemic. It's not the case at all. It was passed well before the pandemic started. It was just because the pandemic hit, I think more people took advantage of it. But we've also seen a real partisan split on it as well, where like three to one Democrats are voting by mail as opposed to Republicans. And part of that is is certainly because of the message from the former president that it was somehow bad. And, and we've actually seen those margins closing a little bit. But in, in 2020, uh, it, it was absolutely three to one, our mail-in ballots, Democrat versus Republican. It's crazy because out here in California, we have we've had mail-in ballots for a while. And it actually used to break the other way. The more conservative voters voted early, the more liberal voters voted on election day. And so it goes to show the disinformation, how much the disinformation and lies can really skew and impact our participation in democracy. From the inside politics perspective, part of the part of the deal for that Act 77 was we were one of the last remaining states that still had straight party voting. So where you could go in and, you know, just mark one thing and vote either all Democrat or Republican. So the Democrats gave that up to get the mail-in voting. A lot of Democrats, a lot, a lot of the the insiders thought it was a bad deal um, because they assumed based on other states' experiences that the mail-in ballots would skew to an older, more conservative and Republican voter. It hasn't ended up that way, but I, I will tell you in 2020, Joe Biden won at the top of the ticket. Josh Shapiro won for attorney general, but we lost two Democratic row officers. And you can see the drop off that not having that straight party ticketing, we have to educate voters now that they have to vote the whole ballot. And you can see that drop off. So it actually benefited Republicans statewide. They picked up two row offices and the General Assembly remained in Republican control and actually expanded. So when people talk about, well, there was cheating. Well, you know, you cheated at the top, but then you decided to come back. You know, some of the legislators who didn't want to vote to certify the election they won re-election on that same on the same ballot that, that Joe Biden did. The selectivity of uh, of where they they believe problems occur is it's it's highly seems to be highly correlated to the races that they lost versus sure. uh, versus all the races. Sure, the selective outrage I call. It. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So one of the things from this experience is you've been selected as to co-chair the New Deal's Democracy Working Group and really try to come up with solutions. Because as you point out, this is elections are essentially operated at the local level and we need we need innovation and good work being done there. Can you talk a little bit about what your vision is for that working group and how the New Deal may be able to uh, to help restore some semblance of faith and belief in our democracy? Yeah, I'd love to see some best practices come out. You know, certainly I've learned from from interacting with other New Deal leaders, you know, how California handles some things, how Nevada handles some things. And you know, we have a patchwork system. You know, it runs state by state. I know I know. But I, I'd like to see some some best practices. And that's that's what I'd really particularly selfishly from my standpoint is, you know, Pennsylvania is still relatively new on the mail in on the mail in ballots. But I know. Oregon, Washington, some other places have been doing it a lot, a lot longer. I feel fundamentally that if we continue down this road where we're just tearing down our elections, then then why should people care about anything? Why, why should they believe anything government does if, if they doesn't? So I think there needs to be a lot more pushback. I think I think people took it for granted maybe in 2020 that the American people weren't buying it. Uh, and, and a lot of people have brought it and, and, they, and they've drank the proverbial Kool-Aid. So if we could have good, good people, and it's got to be in a bipartisan way too. You know, it, it, this can't, this, this can't just be a democratic initiative, but from the new deal perspective, I'm looking to get some best practices that we, that we could put forward and say, okay, we're, we're 50 different States and all that, but what are some things that we can agree on? Um, that'll give people faith and confidence in our elections. I think that makes makes absolute sense. I mean, really, we're facing two democratic crises, right? One is on the mechanics where you have real threats to people being able to access ballots, how ballots are counted, how elections are certified, which I, I'm not sure any of us were prepared for for that that we would have to be figuring out the, those real basics of a free and fair election. And then you have this second piece which is the the faith in democracy and people people believing in democracy as as a as a means and an ends in our system and tackling both is uh is really challenging. Absolutely. You know, I think there's there can be a disconnect too between at least I'm feeling here in Pennsylvania between our legislators who are making the election code with with no real idea of how it impacts the counties on the ground and certainly not providing us any resources to do it is more. They put the mandates down. You know, we had, we had to se- spend several million dollars in Montgomery County to to get scanners to get envelope openers, all, all kinds of things that, that we did. Now, we're a large county. We're the third largest county in Pennsylvania. But I'm involved with a lot of our smaller counties, too, where literally they don't have the manpower or the resources to do it. So they're already looking at the next presidential election, 2024, the big one, and just trying to figure out how they're going to how they're going to manage this, because the state passed the law and it's created more access, but it does create a burden on local government as well. 
and and they managed to do this seemingly in red states and blue states, and uh, on almost every issue, they managed to to pass a lot of laws without thinking about how the counties will have to have to implement them. <laughs> well, and and I I've said to many of them, you know, I, they're they're my friends. I was like, this is going to be your year now, right? They're on the ballot this year. It's like don't. Don't call me at midnight and ask me why your race hasn't been called or why your ballot is we're gonna I say, you know, you can call, I'm not gonna answer. It's like this is uh unless we get pre-canvassing, you know, it 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 takes time to to count the ballots. It's labor intensive. You have to be careful with it. You know that. You you can't just rip envelopes open. There has to be a a trail. So it it takes time. And if we're trying to do it all on election day. At the same time, while we're running the in-person, the in-person election too. Absolutely. Let's talk about how did you find yourself in this spot, <laughs> which is you've obviously had a long interest in government. Where did that come from, and and how how have you how did you find yourself in this position? So I I always had an interest in government. You know, social studies was always one of my favorite classes. Reading political biographies. Um, so I was a political science major, and I had a professor who said to me, "You have to get out there and do something. You know, it's it's you you write good papers, you can read the things." But so I had my first internship, and ironically, my first internship was uh, with the county commissioner here in Montgomery County. So I kind of came full circle on that. I went from there to work in a congressional office. And uh, the congresswoman I was working for was up for re-election. And my plan was that she was going to win re-election. I was going to go work on the Hill for her for a couple of years. And I was going to come back and run for state rep. And I had the next 10 years all mapped out. She lost her re-election in 94. So that was my first lesson is you you don't necessarily make long-term plans in politics. But then I really had a career uh, on the private side. You know, I I did corporate public affairs and I had my own uh, small public affairs firm. And then I was at Temple University, my alma mater, heading up public affairs there. And then in 2017, there was a vacancy for, for county commissioner because Josh Shapiro, another new dealer, was elected attorney general. So I threw my hat in the ring. And at that point, I always thought I, I, I always knew I wanted to serve. I did not think I was going to end up running. I, you know, I thought I was going to work in someone's administration and do that. So ironically, I was technically appointed as an elected official, but then ran for re-election, ran for election to my own term in 2019, you know, won in 2019, was sworn in in 2020, and then the world completely changed. And a lot of people who had no idea what county government did or had heard of it uh, were hearing from us because you know, we have a public health department. So we were on point for the COVID-19 pandemic. And then, of course, with the election. So I really break my my service down now to, you know, pre-COVID, COVID. Now, hopefully, we're kind of in a in a post-COVID world, but where we're dealing with, with social justice issues now that, that, that flared up and it have been going on for years, but people want to see them fixed now. And it, as you know, sometimes government... Uh, Move slowly. Um, maybe all the time it moves slowly, and and maybe sometimes that's good. But now I'm I'm feeling uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said the fierce urgency of now, where people really want to see see changes take place. 
Uh, yeah, and I want to talk about some of your efforts to make those changes come to fruition. But I'm curious, has there been anything, since you spent a long time sitting sort of on the other side of the table, working with private and public sector clients with government, is there anything that surprised you being being in your position now about the decisions elected officials make or the lives that uh, elected officials lead? No, I, I wouldn't. I, I, you know, look, I've had to... Um, I've I've had to get a thicker skin than I probably had before. I'm, I'm probably uh, more sympathetic than I necessarily was. You're not going to make everybody happy. You're, you're just not going to make everybody happy. Someone's always going to be upset for sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for the wrong reasons. So, you know, I just try to make the best decisions that I can and that, that I think are right. And, and then the chips, you know, fall where they, where they may. But I, you know, I, I always, I always thought that elected officials maybe tried to make everybody happy or please everybody and everybody, I think it's a natural human nature. You want people to like you and, and be supportive. But if you're, if you're making tough decisions, sometimes uh, people are going to disagree with them. Sometimes they're going to express themselves in a way that, that maybe it's not necessarily productive or respectful, but you know, I, I have two boys that, you know, and that's what I always think of too, is what, what are they going to think? And I'm always telling them to do the right thing and, and act the right way. That's it. I, I, so I would say that I have more respect for elected officials because we definitely have to put ourselves out there. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a, not to pat ourselves on the back because every decision isn't right, but I probably have more respect for elected officials in public service than I did prior to becoming one. Yeah. And based on that first experience you had where you sort of had a plan and then the electorate threw a wrench in it, how do you think about your political future now with having gone through that experience? I take it one day at a time, you know, and we'll we'll see what happens. You know, you ha- always have to be prepared. Opportunities could come. My my year would be next year to really decide and run. I mean, the, in November 2023. I, I, w- I would say, too, though, that one of the things that I, I remember in college, you know, writing a paper, you know, against term limits. And I was very opposed to term limits because the people should be able to decide and go. I, I would like to see more people do service and then maybe go back to their lives. You know, I think I think I brought a business perspective into government that into county government that wasn't necessarily there before. But I, I think it, it helps our general citizenry too. If you had people who'd be willing to serve for a little bit and and maybe not be there forever too. Because I, I do think if you're always thinking about the next election or your next campaign or your next, then maybe the decision making isn't what it should be. And you know, maybe some of maybe that's why some of these big changes haven't taken place because when you disrupt the status quo, some people are going to be upset by that. Well, I'll tell you, I just I decided this year after eight years at the county level to to step away and and not run for re-election. And um, being a lame duck is actually really fun because uh, you just <laughs> you do get to come in and just vote how you want to vote, and, you know, and say what uh, you want to say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's uh, I, I highly recommend it to all elected <laughs> officials. So tell me, tell me. I mean, you're as you mentioned, right? Like uh, county government is been the on the front lines of the response to covid and then and elections so that has sucked up uh, a lot of time and energy over the last couple of years but what other initiatives are you working on that you're excited about so i will 
I will say I've been educated um, since I've been a, a county commissioner. You know, when I first became a county commissioner, I had a lot of humble facts that I that I would brag about. You know, we're the third largest county, second wealthiest county. We're larger than four states, more manufacturing jobs than than any other county in Pennsylvania. You know, I could just go on. I just give you the top 10 Monco facts. But, you know, I've had two experiences as a commissioner. The first was our health and human services staff asked me to participate in the food stamp challenge. And the food stamp challenge is that you live on $4.75 a day for your food, which is what someone gets on SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. I did it for a week and it was really, really hard. You know, the third night I woke up, and it was the first time I had ever really experienced hunger in my life. You know, I thought I was having an appendicitis because I had this sharp pain, but it was because I was hungry. I lived on ramen noodles in college, but 48, 49 ramen noodles weren't really a good thing for me to be eating every day. You can't eat fruit and vegetables on $4.75 a day because an orange is too expensive when you're trying to stretch that out. And we have 100,000 people here in Montgomery County who are food insecure, which you know means that they they make too much to get SNAP, but they're not making enough to to eat. So we're the second wealthiest county, but you know we and this was in 2019, 2018. We don't even know the number since, and we had 100,000 people who were food insecure. I did the point in time count with the 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 one night a year the federal government mandates us to go out and count count the homeless. And, you know, we went to a bridge that I drive over every day. It's got a trail right rolling over it. So I ride over it on my bike. And there was a woman who came out from underneath the bridge and it was like we had knocked on her front door. Once again, second wealthiest county. So while I still talk about, you know, all the good things about Montgomery County, we have a real dearth of affordable housing here. People are paying too much to live, so they don't have enough to eat. And then they're just one paycheck away from, from being out. And it's some of the things that, that we don't necessarily talk about. I think it's invisible to a lot of people, but I, I think it's an important as a community. We want to be a community where everybody can live and everyone can have an opportunity. You have a lot of people who come here for our great school districts. But when COVID hit, we had three school districts that weren't focused on online learning, but over half of their children were on the free breakfast and lunch program. So if they weren't in school, the schools had to figure out how could they feed these kids. And and there was, as you can imagine, a lot of waivers that had to be released by the federal government and all the stuff. But while other school districts were switching over to virtual learning, you know, you had three of our, our poorest school districts where the majority of the students are black and brown who had to figure out how to feed their kids, not how to teach them, but but how to feed them. So, you know, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, there's systemic inequities that have been in place. And we just got to keep chipping away and, and breaking those down. I yeah, I absolutely it's it is uh it is sobering at the county level because you are the place for health yes. and human services. And so you are the safety net and you when you start to see how frayed and in some cases non-existent that safety net is especially for kids yes it is very very challenging i want to wrap this up on a higher note and give you an opportunity to champion montgomery county which is let's say i got 24 hours to visit your county what do you recommend i do okay 
so we have nearly 100 miles of, of trails. So bring your bike and our trail network is great. You can get all across the county. We're a big county, but you can get all across the county on the trail network. And we have over 40 breweries, distilleries, and wineries in Montgomery County. There's an app, Monco Makers, that lists most of them. And you can check in and get prizes there. So you can bring your bike. You can ride around. You can hit the breweries. You can hit the distilleries. That's... That's what uh, that's one of the things I love about Montgomery County. And but we we you know we have arts here. We have a, a great zoo here. I could I could get you a tremendous twenty four hour schedule here in Montgomery County that would would knock your socks off for sure. <laughs> I, I like it. Breweries definitely always do help a bike ride. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> keeps you motivated to get Keep, to the next keeps one. Keeps you going. Keeps you going. And we and it's it's been interesting too. You know, a lot of the breweries they they locate along the trails now, so you you can you can just pop off the trail, refresh, get back on. You 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 want to take it easy, right? You can't do but so much. But you know, that's been one of the real things since I've been a commissioner. We call it the trail challenge, Monco trail challenge that you hit 15 trails. And I've always been a trail guy, an active guy. But what this made me do was go go to other parts of the county that maybe typically I wouldn't go to. And it just like opened up a whole a whole new world. I just love how our trails can connect our different towns and and different areas. I love it. I love it. Well, I look forward to hopefully coming out and visiting. Let me know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, you make a you make a good case. I want to thank you for your service. Thank you for co-chairing the Democracy Working Group. It is the most critical issue we're all facing right now. And your leadership and and real-world experience helps inform that group and allows us, I think, that will allow the New Deal leaders to come up with some, some good examples and, as you say, share best practices across the country and make some change. Right. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more Amazing Leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.